Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. I want to start by asking you a question. I guess not really asking you a question, but making a statement. A statement that you all believe, but a statement that you probably don't think about a lot. The statement is this. What we believe shapes our life. What we believe shapes our life. Now think about it, it's true, isn't it? If you believe right now that you don't have enough time in the day, you schedule your life a little differently, don't you? If you believe that you aren't at the weight that you would like, you begin to eat differently and maybe work out a little bit more. If you believe that all people all people are loved by God, and therefore all people have value, you begin to treat people differently. If you believe that your credit card debt has gotten out of control, you begin to spend differently and you begin to put together a budget. If you believe that marriage is, is more about what you give than what you get, you experience a very different marriage. You see, what we believe shapes our lives. What I believe shapes my life. What you believe shapes your life. Which means if you believe that there is a God who loves you, a God who created you, who pursues you, who empowers you, and ultimately has the availability to transform you in this life and then next, you experience life very differently. You see life very differently and you live your life very differently. Because when you believe there is a God out there, there's a savior out there who loves you and has your best interest in mind, that impacts everything in your life. It impacts your marriage. It impacts all your friendships, your relationships. It impacts your, your work life and your business life and how you spend your money and how you even use your day, right? It influences everything because what we believe shapes our life. And this is why every organization you've been a part of, every church you've been a part of, has some sort of statement of belief. We call these statements of belief creeds. It comes from the Latin term credo, which means simply, I believe. And the reason churches have these and the reason that also organizations have these is because they know this. If you have a creed and people buy into that creed, they will all move in the same direction and you will accomplish your goal. And this actually works whether the creed is good or bad, if the, if the goal is good or bad, right? If there is a movement, they have a common belief system, no matter what the outcome is or no matter what they want to accomplish. If they can stay in alignment, they will accomplish their goal. But as soon as there's disunity, as soon as people don't believe the same thing anymore, that, that crumbles around them, right? There's disorder and there's infighting and there's just bottom line, there's failure. And you've all been a part of something like this before. You've been a part of maybe a work environment or a group. You maybe have been a part of a church where this was true, right? You had a common belief system, but then that crumbled and then everything just kind of fell apart around you. Now, most of us have experienced this. I actually experienced it when I was really young and, and you probably did too. Where I experienced it was actually in, in fourth grade 
basketball, which of course we all know is very important, right? But when you think about fourth grade basketball, you actually already have a belief system about youth sports or maybe even specifically fourth grade basketball, right? You have some thoughts come to mind of the purpose of fourth grade basketball. Maybe you're thinking, I believe that the fourth grade basketball, the point is to have fun or to make new friends, to get some kids moving and physically fit, to teach them some lessons about teamwork or some skill set. Fourth grade basketball is, is a great time where everyone can get equal playing time. All right, we all have beliefs about what basketball should be or what fourth grade basketball should be. And some of you might even have the audacity to think that, that basketball, even fourth grade basketball, the point of it is to win. Now, you don't have to tell me who you are. I know some of you would, you'd want that, right? You still want to win no matter what you're doing. But when I was in fourth grade, I got my first opportunity to play organized basketball. It was very, very exciting. And so I remember getting the uniform and going to practice and, and all that stuff and playing the games. But before long, the season was over. The season was over and all I had could do was wait till the next year. And I was sitting in my classroom in elementary school and all of a sudden the principal walks in, which is always a little bit, you know, nerve wracking. It's even worse when he calls your name. So he called my name, I walked out into the hallway and you can just hear the murmurs of all my classmates wondering what I had done because I also was wondering what I had done. And I was racking my brain of all my past infractions at school, which one was gonna finally catch up with me. And I went out with the principal who I should say was also my basketball coach. And he said this, Ben, the big end of the year, sixth grade basketball tournament is, is coming up. And I'd like to know if you would like to play. Now, this was beyond an honor. You see, what you don't know is that this was a big, big deal in my community. The sixth grade basketball tournament was a big, big deal. All the towns from all the surrounding areas would come and play in this. This was, this was beyond exciting. And one of the reasons that it was personally exciting for me is my brothers are older than me. They're about seven, eight years older than me. And I had watched them play in this very same tournament. And ever since I watched them play in it, all I could think about was one thing. Someday I'll be in sixth grade and someday I'll get to play in this tournament. I mean, it was all I was looking forward to. And now I was given an opportunity to play in it as a fourth grader. This was unheard of. This was exciting. But I was soon to learn something about people's credos and people's beliefs. You see, obviously the coach's belief was that tournaments and sixth grade basketball, the point was to win. But when I walked into practice as a fourth grader with all the sixth graders, I quickly learned that not everyone had the same belief system. You see, some players weren't very happy to see me as a fourth grader with sixth graders. And when they went home, I found out very soon that some parents weren't very happy that I was there either because they didn't have that same belief system. They thought sixth grade basketball was for fun and to build friendships. And why would he be there to accomplish that goal? You see, I was obviously there to make sure that everyone got equal playing time. I was there for one reason. The coach thought I could help the team win. And so what happened? It what, hap it what happens when we don't believe the same things, right? There's disunity and there's tension and there's turmoil. Well, oftentimes in our lives, we have these realities, right? We've lived in these realities. And that's where as a church, we have a common belief system. And one of the common belief systems that we have is called the creed. Specifically today, and for the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is this, this beautiful creed, historical creed, based on biblical truth. And it does really two things. It holds us together in unity. 
right? So we can all recite and know and, and, and hold on to the core beliefs of our faith. So it holds us together in unity, but it also protects us. It protects us from false teaching. If someone were to come up here and teach something counter to the Apostles' Creed, or if you're engaging with somebody in life and then they're teaching something or you're reading something that's counter to the Apostles' Creed, you know that's not connected with the historical teachings of the church. But if I, I boiled the creed down today, even though it's a, a boiled down version of our scriptures, right? If I, if I took the creed and really boiled it down anymore, even more, the whole point of the creed is really centered on the personhood of Jesus. And not only who he is, but what he does for us. And in the end, one of the things that we really need to hold on to is that Jesus loves us, which seems very basic and seems very simple. But remember, what you believe shapes your life. And if you believe that there's a God out there, if you believe there's a, a savior out there who loves you and always has your best interest in mind and at heart, then you can trust him with absolutely everything. And there was a person in scripture who knew this better than anyone else. His name was Paul, right? The apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. He went through all sorts of hardships to proclaim the truth of Christ. And you know what got him through? Every hardship, every imprisonment, every, every time he was ridiculed and beaten. It was this love of Jesus. It was that Jesus loved him. And because Jesus loved him, because he knew that, he could trust him in every circumstance. In fact, he wrote this beautiful section of scripture that we're going to look at today in Romans 8. He wrote it for the people in that day, the Romans in that day, the people who read it in that day. And also, of course, we get to read it today and also feel what he wanted those people to feel in that day. This is how he began. All right, so this is what Paul says for us today. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So as, as Paul writes this, it's obvious to us that he was talking about something previous to this, right? We're stepping into the middle of a conversation. So of course, it's very important to know what he was talking about before he got to this amazing promise that God is for us. You see, what he was talking about is really two things. He was talking about God's law or God's rules. And he was also talking about persecution, right? Being mistreated for the cause of Christ. Now, if we took this and really understood it, there's really two things at play here. We're really talking about our failures towards God and people's failures towards us, which obviously is a pretty big bucket, right? Our failures towards God and, and people's failures towards us, that catches a lot of things. That's a lot of sins going forward and backwards, right? It catches a lot of stuff, a lot of difficulties in our life. So what does Paul want us to know? And despite all of those things, despite our failures towards God and people's failures towards us, he wants us to know this, that despite those things, even in the midst of those things, it might not feel like it, but God is for us. Even in the most dark, difficult moments in our life and seasons of our life, God is for us. Which sounds outlandish, doesn't it? Because when we're going through hardships in our life, when we're going through difficulties in our life, the last thing we think is, man, obviously God is blessing me. God is for me, right? It doesn't feel like that. But Paul went through a lot of difficulties. Paul was imprisoned and beaten and ridiculed and ultimately he would die for his faith. But what kept him going? He knew that God was for him. No matter what was happening in his life, God was for him. Now, why could he say such a, a grandiose statement? 
I mean, how could he believe that with all the bad stuff that happened in his life? How can we believe that with all the bad stuff that happens in our life? Well, this is why. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? See, why was Paul so confident that God was for him even in the worst of situations? Three words. His own son. Do you feel the power and emotion of that? That God traded his son, the well-being of his son, for our well-being? Can you imagine doing that? I bet you can't. I can't imagine doing that. You can't imagine doing that. We probably shouldn't do that, right? To give up our child, whether it's a son or a daughter or a grandchild, can you imagine giving that that child up for the well-being of someone else? Now, I I love you guys. I have loved my experience here at at New Life, right? I work hard for you guys. I really try to be diligent, but I'll I'll tell you, I'm not going to give my kid up for you, right? And you wouldn't either, would you? Right? I'm not going to sacrifice my relationship with my child in any respect for church or pastoral ministry or the Sock Valley. Right? If that day came and for some reason I was losing my child, I would turn in my keys. Right? If I was losing my daughter because of pastoral ministry, I would take my robe off and never put it on again. Right? If for some reason, this community was getting in the way of my relationship with my son or my daughter, I would sell my house, find someplace else to live, right? And you would do the same thing because there's nothing more important than our relationship with our kids besides our marriage. But that's not what God did. And that's why this is so powerful. God gave up his very own son. Can you imagine giving up your child for the well-being of somebody else. This is why Paul was so confident that God was for him no matter what was happening. But there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a tension in the midst of this. If God gave up his son for us, for our well-being, that's an investment. And the tension is this. What if he thinks, or what if he realizes he's made a bad investment? Well, Paul speaks into that as well. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. See, what if God does realize he's made a bad investment? I mean, maybe he naively gave up his son and then he got us and and now that he has us and he looks at us, he realizes this was not worth it. Right, because God knows everything, right? We all know this, God knows everything. But now, We're his, now he has us and now he looks and he sees our lives and he sees our failures and he sees our shortcomings. He sees the pile of unpaid bills. He sees the ways that maybe we've cheated on our taxes. He sees the way that we treat our spouse. He knows what we do when no one else is looking, right? There's a tension there. Now that he knows and now that he knows he's traded his son for this, Is he going to punish us? Is he going to turn on us? Well, this is what Paul says. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. 
who indeed intercedes for us. So what is Paul's answer? Is God going to turn on us? No. Why? Because the very son that he gave up, the well-being of his son, the person that he gave up for us is interceding for us. Right? This Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, paid our debt, rose from the dead, came back to life, is now sitting next to God. And what role does he take? The role of a lawyer. Right? He's our defense attorney. And what is he doing? He's whispering into his dad's ear. Let him off. Right? Forgive them. I know the trade was not good, but we're going to love them anyways. It's Jesus, his very own son, that makes sure that God does not put his thumb down on us. Well, Paul moves on. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see, once we have our, our fears alleviated when our relationship with God comes into play, right? Once we're not worried about Jesus and once we're not worried about God, our, our natural tendency is to look at the world around us, right? The everyday concerns of life. So Paul wants us to still know this, and this is very important, that Jesus still loves us in every one of these situations. When life is hard, Jesus still loves you. He's still for you. When life is stressful, Jesus still loves you. He's still for you, right? When people are mistreating you, Jesus still loves you. He's still for you. When you're going through difficult times, maybe your business is failing, maybe you don't have any money in the bank, right? You're hungry, starving, you can't buy new clothes, you can't buy new things. Even in those dark times that feel so desperate and so hopeless, Jesus is for you and Jesus loves you. When there's a pandemic, when we have health concerns, when cancer enters into the picture, Jesus is still for you. When war is on the horizon, we're concerned about it coming to our, our nation, Jesus is still for you. You see, for Paul, this wasn't just a random list, right? As he looked through his diary, as he looked through his life, he had experienced all of these things. And what did he know at the end? Jesus loved him, and Jesus was still for him. So he goes on. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, what is Paul really driving at? He's driving at the reality that we all feel, the tension that we all feel. When, when life is hard, when things aren't going well, we feel like everything is falling apart. We feel like God is against us. Right? We feel like we can never win. We can never accomplish what we want to accomplish. But what does Paul say? No, we are more than conquerors. In other words, in the end, we win. In the end, we conquer. Why? Because Jesus is the conquering one. And Jesus brings us along into his victory. Well, Paul closes with this. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul just kind of captures everything in life, everything that we can see, everything that we can't see. And what does he say? What can separate us from Christ? Nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. Whatever is going on, whatever you've done, as long as you still want that relationship with God, he still wants that relationship with you. No matter what you're doing right now, no matter what you've done in the past, 
that opportunity is still available for you. So I want you to gather really one thing and hold on to one thing today as we begin this new sermon series. I want you to hold on to a very simple truth, a truth that your parents taught you when you were really young, a song that you probably sang when you were in elementary school, right? But it's this truth that's so central to our faith and so important because what we believe shapes our lives. So this is what I want you to hold on to today. Simple truth of he loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Not because of what you offer, not because of who you are, but despite of what you offer and despite of who you are. Jesus loves you in every dark time. He is with you and he is for you. And because you know that, because you know that he loves you, and because you know that he has your best interest in mind, you can trust him. You can trust him in every area of your life. Because what you believe shapes your life. You do more work trying to find. Trying to find. You find more trouble trying.